Hello, today we're joined by Tim Montague, solo developer, NAPSIP trainer, and host of the Clean Power Hour podcast. Welcome to our podcast, Tim. Thanks, James. It's great to be here. Brilliant. To start, we'd love to hear how you ended up becoming a solo developer. I grew up in the small city of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and my dad was a professor at the University of New Mexico. He taught environmental studies, and we were doing backyard solar thermal, meaning making hot water from sunlight. That was a thing back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. PV was hardly on the scene because it was very expensive. PV was invented in the 50s, but it didn't go mainstream and literally until the early 2000s. So fast forward, I was doing sustainability consulting in the 2010s and was casting about for my next big thing. And a Canadian uh, named Paul was kind enough to cold call me on a Saturday morning and said, hey, we've reached grid parity. And what that means is that solar is now cost competitive with other sources of energy. And that was in 2016. I dove in with both feet. I was primed for a career in clean energy. And uh, shortly thereafter, I found the uh, a, a great solar installer called Continental Energy Solutions. And I became the head of business development for Continental, selling and developing commercial solar projects. That was the long and short of it, but it was a homecoming. You know, sustainability is in my blood. I was an ecologist by training, uh, both bachelor's and master's, and had never really found traction until I started doing green business consulting. I'm a business guy. That's the bulk of my career is do doing B2B sales, marketing, and consulting. And so solar just brings it all together. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, if I think about my own kind of journey to here, so much can be pointed back to the fact that the farm I was growing up on converted to organic farming in the late 90s. And that was like a point of like, oh, you know, we actually do have to be better stewards of, of the land, have to be better stewards of environment more generally. And, you know, even though I didn't end up working on anything with a climate impact until the last year or so, that was always kind of there in the background. And so it's fascinating how these kind of elements of our, of our upbringing kind of affect us. But I guess... Diving into the, when that uh, you got that phone call, you know, going from there and you know making a decision to kind of change career directions and so on. What were the kind of next, let's say, six to eighteen months like? Right? What were the kind of learnings you have to do? Because one of the things I think we're going to see, particularly post IRA, is a lot of folks trying to come into the industry, become sort of developers, and so on. And so, yeah, how did you kind of optimize your own learning at that time? Yeah, and and I love this question because I help dozens and dozens of people get into the solar industry and I want to help more. So if you're listening to this and you're interested in clean energy, in the energy transition, in any aspect of it, whether that's electrification of transportation or making food systems more sustainable, but obviously also solar wind and battery storage where I'm quite an expert. I am a very curious person. I love technology. I love entrepreneurship. I had worked as a business advisor at my local small business development center working with technology entrepreneurs. So I just, I love that nexus of technology and business and now sustainability. And so PV, while I had a lot to learn about like construction and what are the components of a solar array and how do you uh, discern the good, the bad from the ugly in terms of those products and how do you qualify a commercial solar project? I had to learn that truly, even though I knew a lot about B2B sales, I didn't know a lot about selling projects that were 
you know, these are projects that are $50,000 at the very small end to $5 million or even more, maybe $10 million in the CNI and small utility solar space. And so I had a ton to learn and I just dove in with both feet. Of course, I had colleagues. I was working with a gentleman named Brian Haug, whose shoulders I stand on. He was the president of the Illinois Solar Energy Association and the president of Continental Energy Solutions. And I then worked very closely with a cadre of project managers at Continental and then started networking like a mad dog with other solar professionals and other energy professionals. I had actually got involved with Illinois Solar Energy Association several years before when I was doing corporate relations for the Notabart Nature Museum, which is a, a well-known institution on the, on the north side, the near north side of Chicago. They had a rooftop solar array and I hosted a meeting of ICEA at our facility. So I had an interest in, in clean energy and was, was gathering bits and pieces and, and building a network. And I still have uh, many of those contacts that I made back, that was back in like 2005. And now, you know, fast forward and the, the industry is just exploding. So I was an early adopter and, but it pays to be curious. It pays to be outgoing or take the risk of stepping out of your comfort zone, so to speak, right? Because I had never sold a solar project. And then I was the head of business development for a, oh, you know, about a hundred million dollar business at the time. And, uh, you know, it's sink or swim, but I was well suited to the job and, and I love working with business owners, you know, helping them reduce their cost of energy. That's the bottom dollar for that is the impact that solar makes reduce your energy bill with a rooftop or ground mount solar array that, that plugs into your facility. And that's a feel good, right? Because we're greening the grid, we're reducing air pollution, and we're saving money, which then can be used for other things like R&D or hiring. So there's no one single path, right, for any particular career in clean energy. But it starts with being curious and then finding those organizations, those networks, and those nodes. I like to think of people and organizations as nodes, and each node will then be a connector for you to many other nodes. No, I, that, that makes a ton of sense. And there's a phrase that a friend of mine uses, you know, you have to try to maximize serendipity, right? Like things don't always come to you. It's often good to try to find yourself in, in yeah, in the middle of a node or try to build that yourself where all of a sudden people are uh, connecting to you. And I think both of us do that individually with our own podcasts. I've done that with events and, and groups that I've run over the years. If I think about like the business development side of things, right, there's actually a lot of, I guess, buying and selling within the energy space and, and at the different layers. And you mentioned the kind of business owners that you were selling to. What was kind of a typical profile of a, of a customer and how has that changed? And not just in terms of maybe the profile of the customer over the years, but also what they care about. One of my favorite projects is a project called Simmons Knife, S-I-M-M-O-N-S, Simmons Knife. And they make knife blades for the food processing industry and for the furniture industry. And this is a multi-generational family business. They have about a 50,000 square foot facility. I made a small video about the project and I interviewed the CEO on my podcast. So this is not sensitive information. They're, they're in the wild about them going solar, but they were, you know, they were intrigued by the opportunity to make their facility more sustainable. We were able to offset about 70% of their electrical load with a rooftop array. So the facility is constrained, right? The roof wasn't quite big enough to put a new array on, uh, to put a, 
a big enough array on to offset 100% of their load, but they were very particular about this, uh, about trying to achieve the greatest impact possible. Uh, and, and there are some subtle things about solar that, that you have to tweak. In this case, we used five degree tilt panels versus 10 degree. And the di difference is that you can squeeze more solar panels onto a roof by doing five degree. So it's a, it's a slightly lower degree tilt array. And that way you can smash more solar in and get more solar KWH out. And this was just very interesting, right? That they were very clear at the get-go. It was the, the typical leadership team is the C-suite. So we had the CEO, the CFO, the COO, and the facility manager. And they were very aligned. Of course, they were following a charismatic leader. Colin Murphy is his name. And it was just, they were just very clear that we want to become more sustainable and we want to do something that's good for our bottom dollar, but also good for our employees and our other stakeholders, meaning their customers, right? So when you make saw blades with clean green electricity, that's a more sustainable product. And so they're greening their entire value chain and becoming a leader in their ecosystem and, and in their sphere of influence and showing others that, hey, this matters and this is an opportunity for you. I almost never lead with sustainability because only about one in 10 business owners or leaders truly cares about sustainability. And I'm not blaming them. You have to be very concerned with your bottom line as a business owner. It's non-trivial to be profitable and to be sustainable, meaning to maintain your growth year over year. And that involves, you know, R&D and expansion and facilities and hiring and firing and running a business is complicated. And then to layer on this goal of, well, let's become more sustainable. That can be uh, quite a journey. But luckily, you know, solar is not the most complicated thing in the world. It's black panels that sit on your roof or on your field or on your parking lot. And they make electricity from sunlight. And then you're just reducing your consumption from the grid. So that was that was kind of the long and short of it with Simmons Knife. And they were just a model customer and my all-time favorite to date. Yeah, I think absolutely the this trade-off, right, between why, I guess, some people might get into specific industries that drive from the kind of conservation point of view. But then it's still, these are all businesses. And it was interesting, like you didn't get that phone call until the cost parity had happened. And now, you know, solar panels are in many parts of the world, the cheapest form of electricity generation that you can install. And so that is what's enabling the kind of dramatic distribution of these assets and building of these assets, right? Like incentives and things like inflation reduction act. These are all very, very powerful ways of continuing to push things along, but it's the actual cost curves coming down so quickly that's actually enabled businesses to make profit building these things and then the customers to see that there is actual financial reason to engage in it but i guess like when you're kind of think working through um, that particular project or other projects you know and i think this does vary whether it's ground mounted or roof mounted what are some typical hurdles that you have to overcome and how did your kind of approach to overcoming those hurdles change over the years developing solar projects is not easy I, I don't want to paint too rosy a picture. And it's not so much that it's changed a lot over the years. It's just, I've experienced more nuances. You know, we, you first run into the facility front and center. You're looking for a rooftop that's less than 10 years old. And that's hard to find. Uh, many rooftops are more than 10 years old and they have, uh, you know, 20 years of life left in them. 
and you just many times cannot put a solar array on that roof. And uh, we know with Simmons Knife, they needed a new roof and they were prepared to put on a new roof. And we were able to combine the two into a single CapEx. And that is a, a trick of the trade that few installers know or use. So check that out. And, but it is a capital expense. If they're going to buy a project, you don't have to, they don't have to CapEx the project. You could do a PPA or third-party ownership. Uh, there's also commercial leases for these facilities. So there's many ways to skin the financial cat, so to speak. And that can be a hurdle. Most of all, though, you, you need a, you need to find a customer who's dedicated to doing something, right? Because you can spend a lot of time drilling down on a project and then go nowhere and it just kind of gets put on a shelf. And so time and money become constraints for these, these facility owners. They're busy doing whatever they do, making widgets, making computer products, or making monitoring systems for the solar industry, perhaps. And energy isn't their first uh, line of business. They may be interested but you really have to be dedicated. And so being able to sift through those, you know, those leaders and finding the team that is really going to get something across the line is, is vital. And that's a very nuanced thing. So, I mean, some of the other things are, of course, the landscape, right? In the U.S. now, we have really good legislation in 2022 called IRO. You referred to that in the introduction, the Inflation Reduction Act. That changed the landscape in, in several ways. It's, it's uh applying, for example, an investment tax credit at 30%. The investment tax credit was 26% and it was going to step down to 10% in the next couple of years. Now we have a good 10-year run at 30%. So that softens the blow, so to speak, or the CapEx for, for both third-party owners or first-party host owners. And it makes solar more affordable and it makes it pencil better. And so that just increases the uptake, right? We were growing at 40% a year in the solar industry globally. Now, here in the U.S., we're going to start growing at 60% a year. So we're on a very rapid trajectory. So then there's also, so that landscape is very important. Uh, legislation, and that's a local thing and a you know national thing. You have to know what's going on locally. I happen to be in the industry because we have good legislation going on in Illinois. And that was the other kind of perfect storm for me is that, we had legislation that got signed in 2016 and really catapulted our state. We were we only had 80 megawatts of solar in Illinois in 2017. Now we have over 1.8 gigawatts five years later. And that's because of the Future Energy Jobs Act. And now we have something called the Clean Energy, oh no, sorry, the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act, CJA, which has created a whole new host of, of incentives, which are an accelerant. And then there's things like, Supply chain, right? We had COVID. That slowed things down. Then we had the chip shortage. There's a human resource shortage, right? There's a shortage of labor. It's hard to find installers. It's hard to find engineers and project managers and financial analysts across the board. Everybody is, is kind of hurting for proper staffing. And this, can, I kind of think it, it creates an awareness around how valuable people are and i like that because that's at the end of the day what this is about is creating a more a safer and uh cleaner future for humanity one that is gonna be buffered from the the unpredictability of climate change hopefully if we can get there fast enough 
it's not a question of are we going to make the energy transition right it's it's a question of will we make it fast enough yeah and i think it's so interesting to talk about the uh, like all the different elements all those different constraints on the deployment of these assets and i think what's most fascinating to me again coming into this industry much more recently is that money isn't really the constraint anymore like it's basically you have so much capital being deployed from public and private sources to buy these assets to operate these assets to develop these assets and the constraints are further upstream it's constraints around land it's constraints around people as you said there are literal legal constraints from particular areas and all these kind of things supply chain is a massive one you had some kind of wild things that, that happened earlier in the year in terms of tariffs and, and all these kind of things but to me it's like for folks who are thinking about coming into the industry it's like there's a lot of problems to be solved but the money is not one of them that's a pretty solved problem there's just a ton of money to be deployed. And so if you can find a way to deploy assets faster, develop assets faster, help out in the supply chain, help out on retraining and getting more people who can be installers and work on the design of projects and all these different elements, there's a lot of business to be done. And a lot of smart people, I think, need to like look at the space in a lot more detail. Yeah, I'm glad you're drilling down on this. You know, there's a great opportunity in organizations like the Department of Energy right now. The Department of Energy is the the department in the federal government that sets the tone for the future of the energy landscape in the U.S. And it is experiencing a renaissance right now. They have new funding. They have some very charismatic leaders like Jigger Shah, who's the head of the loan program office. I was just about to mention Jigger. <laughs> yeah. And and Jigger is, a, is, a, is an OG in the solar industry. He became famous for starting a company called Sun Edison, which made the, which popularized the Commercial Power Purchase Agreement or PPA in the United States. And, and then he went on to, to found Generate Capital, which is a clean infrastructure uh, finance company. And now he's the head of the loan program officer, which is fueling uh, next generation technologies and, and helping to bring them to the light of day, so to speak. But but the DOE is hiring a thousand people now. And these are guys like you and me, James, who have backgrounds in entrepreneurship or technology or project management or sales and marketing. All kinds of people are being hired by the DOE. And this is a great thing and just one of the many opportunities. So there's opportunities in government. There's opportunities in the private sector. There's opportunities as entrepreneurs. Or just for like recent high school grads, right? You can become an electrician or a laborer on solar fields and make $30 an hour without a college degree, which is a wonderful thing. Absolutely. And if you think about just the last few generations, right? So when I came out of university in the early 2000s, everyone who wanted to make money went into finance. Like it was pre the big crash in 2007. And that's where everybody kind of flocked to. And then after that, it was big tech, right? Like if you wanted to make a ton of money and up to pretty much, I would say just very recently, that's where you wanted to go to. And now I think it's it's definitely going to be clean technology, right? With energy, I think driving the vast majority. And you're starting to see just really impressive companies. You're starting to see that support coming from those governmental agencies. RPE is another like amazing organization that does a ton of funding for moonshot type energy and related technologies that have a large climate component. And so, yeah, it's uh, there's a guy called Saul Griffith who talks about electrifying everything. And 
you know, he says there's even <laughs> there's even roles for the lawyers, right? Like, you know, trying to navigate different permitting requirements and so on. And so, yeah, so anyone listening, regardless of your skill set, there is a place, right, in this kind of revolution. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Saul Griffith and Electrify Everything. I can't remember the name of the organization, but he's got a book. and So Saul Griffith, he's a other lab, I believe. Well, that is one of the organizations, but there's another one around Electrify that, that he is spearheading. And, and they're a nonprofit. And, you know, so they're, they're kind of a think tank and community organizing around, okay, how do we transition as fast as possible? And he references things like the, the World War II effort, right, that the U.S. government made. We turned on a dime. We converted our factories to making tanks and bombers instead of trucks and, uh, trucks and passenger airplanes. And, and we did this in a very short period of time, and it's truly astounding that the federal government was able to form this joint partnership with private industry and just completely turn the economy towards defeating Hitler. And it worked, but it was a massive, massive transformation of the economy, and that's what we need to see now in order to net zero the economy, which is 40 gigatons of CO2 equivalent per year that the economy is you know, spewing into the atmosphere. And then we have to figure out how to re reduce the 800 gigatons that are already up there from the last, you know, 150 years of industrialization. It's, it's no small feat, but it's totally doable. We have the technology like heat pumps and like solar arrays and wind farms and battery farms and other energy storage technologies. It really is a very, a very exciting time. Absolutely. We'd love to continue digging into some different parts of the development picture because we're definitely talking a lot about the commercial industrial CNI space. But one of the kind of big developments in the last five years in particular is this idea of community solar. And you know, there's people from all around the country, all around the world, who may be in a jurisdiction that doesn't really have a community solar program. What is community solar and why is it something that's having a larger and larger impact on the development landscape? Community solar is a way to make solar accessible to people who don't have a sunny roof or don't own a home. So this is renters and people who can't afford to put a solar array on their home if they do own a home or people that have a shady roof, right? Which is many, many people. And so you build a central array, maybe a one megawatt to five megawatt solar farm. These are say five to 50 acre solar farms. And then you let residents in that geography subscribe to the solar array and thereby buying in directly to a solar project and it's called community solar there's subtle nuances and different ways of doing it but the most popular way in the united states is you build an array and then you get subscribers from that territory in uh, that utility territory so in illinois we have ComEd in Northern Illinois, and Ameren in Central and Southern Illinois, and then Mid-American in Western Illinois. And in those three territories, community solar is a thing. The state has a law that mandates those utilities. These are investor-owned utilities, uh, which covers a huge chunk of the population. Perhaps 70% of Illinois' population lives in these IOU territories. And now, if you're an Ameren, ComEd, or Mid-American customer, you also have the ability to become a subscriber to a community solar project. You get a 10% discount approximately, generally speaking. So you're going to save money 
and not have a huge cash outlay. A solar rate costs, you know, a residential solar project costs $20,000 to $30,000. It's like buying a car. And so while for some people that's no big deal, for many it is a big deal, especially if you don't own your own home, right? You're not going to install a solar array on a house that you rent or if you live in an apartment. So community solar is very, very important. And it got started in Colorado. I think Sunshare was one of the first community solar developers in the U.S., but now there's dozens of community solar developers, and there's a handful of really good states that are driving this forward. Illinois happens to be one, Massachusetts is one, New York, up into Maine. Maine has a good community solar program now. New Jersey has a struggling community solar program, but it is happening. And California has a nascent community solar program. They really were a latecomer. They had something called community choice aggregation, which is a cousin to that, but it really wasn't this form of modern community solar. So now they're they're uh, they're getting in the game as well. What I love about community solar as a concept is, I, I mean, it's in the name, right? It's the community side of it. You know, you are having people who don't actually know you don't know the other people in your community necessarily who signed up. But I love this idea where you have thousands of people in a couple of counties, let's say, worth of space. And together, they enabled through their pricing power, through their buying decisions, you know, a five megawatts ground mounted uh, solar farm, maybe 20 minutes drive from them. And the kind of emergence of that kind of shared ability and like the way legislation has enabled that. I think it's like, this is a really fascinating approach. And honestly, it's kind of surprising that it, it kind of emerged in the United States. It's something that sounds very European, very Irish or German to me, but it's absolutely fantastic and I really love it. Yeah, I, I have to say I'm very excited about community solar because it does give such a broad swath of the populace access to solar. And um, I mean, I already, so I live in Urbana, Illinois, in central Illinois, my city participates in a group purchase program called Community Choice Aggregation. And so they get together with a, a handful of other cities and they do this group buy of clean energy. So they're buying a contract to buy clean electrons from energy suppliers. And, and then the energy suppliers are going out on the open market and securing these large contracts from wind and solar developers for what's called green tags or RECs, renewable energy credits. And that's a legit way of buying clean energy, but it's it's so much more direct when you can say, oh, I'm buying power from the solar array on the closed landfill in downtown Urbana, which there is a community solar farm on the closed landfill now in downtown Urbana. And it targets, in their case, low income, low and middle income residents of the city of Urbana, which is wonderful, right? Because those people are already stressed financially, and now they're going to save money on their power bill, consume local green electrons, and it's uh, it's just a win-win. And those are all the kind of positive sides of the community side, but we also come across various uh, issues uh, from community objections to certain types of development, solar included. Have you come across any of those? What are the typical reasons why a community might object to solar being built you know, at scale in their community? I'm sorry, what is the question? And so on the community side, those are all the kind of positive aspects of community solar. But, you know, large-scale solar definitely also has certain communities that object to it being built in their midst. Have you ever come across any projects that are struggling to get through public meetings and so on where there's various objections? And how have you dealt with that in your kind of own career? Well, 
This is a very important topic, getting community buy-in for large-scale solar. And I'm not a large-scale solar developer. I develop 20 megawatt and down projects, so one to 20 megawatt projects. But even these community solar projects that I'm developing in Illinois are meeting pushback from local communities. So when you bring a change to the land, you know, we're talking about rural landscapes in many parts of the country. That's where these community solar projects are getting built. It's not only in rural landscapes. Some of it is on, on brownfields and, and uh, you know, on the, on the edge of, of uh, suburbia, so to speak. But, but here in the Midwest, we have gobs and gobs of, of flat farm ground. And a landowner can triple their income by leasing their land to a solar or wind developer. So it's compelling for the landowner to consider leasing their, their land. So if the, if the land is in the right geographic area, meaning the right territory, the right utility territory, and has access to the right kinds of infrastructure, meaning substations, and in, a, in my case, three-phase power lines, because I do distributed generation, or if you're a a large-scale utility developer, you want access to transmission lines, the big power lines. And, and so when these changes are presented to local communities, it can create some pushback. And that's understandable. It is a change. You're going from corn and bean farming to solar farming. And yes, you're putting a structure of uh, you know steel and glass and silicon onto a field. I'm also an ecologist by training, and so I care about the land, and I know a lot about, about ecology, and this is actually really good for the land. So it's good for the landowner from an economic perspective. It helps them keep their, land, keep their family on the land. A lot of next generation farmers are, you know, their children want to go to the city, and so farm communities are struggling, and they're struggling economically, and so it's also then creating a tax base for things like schools. There are some huge number of taxing bodies in Illinois, something like 15 different taxing bodies. So there's many institutions that benefit from this type of development. But so the, the, one of the biggest challenges is that then there's neighbors to the facility. So there's a, a farmhouse uh, a couple doors down from this solar field or this potential solar field. And those landowners sometimes are not properly engaged in the discussion about the project prior to a meeting with a zoning board of appeals, for example, which is one of the permitting bodies that you have to talk about your project with in order to get a permit. And, and so neighbors of projects do push back sometimes, and it's both end. Sometimes they can be educated and uh, you know, they come around and they will get behind a project and sometimes they don't. And so we call this NIMBYism in the industry, not in my backyard. Uh, there's also YIMBYism, yes, in my backyard. And, proud YIMBY over here. Uh, why? <laughs> a proud in my backyard on, on my side, yes. Yeah. And, and, and so my message to energy professionals is simply, we need to up our game. We need to become more professional, more proactive. We need to engage all the stakeholders in the decision-making process. And, and the more proactive we can be, the, the, the smoother the transition is going to be. One of, the, one of the risks here, James, is that we're not going to make the, the, the energy transition fast enough to, to really slow down climate change. Uh, 
we have, as you said, the, the money now. The money's on our side. There's just gobs and gobs of finance flowing into wind, solar, and battery storage. But at, where, where the rubber meets the road, getting these things permitted and interconnected. So it's both the, the local stakeholders, and we have to be better about communicating the value proposition to local communities and working with local landowners and residents, and then also utilities and getting the interconnection agreement for these projects and making sure that that is economical is also a major hurdle in some jurisdictions and some geographies. So it's it's a both end. So we have many opportunities. And, and I say this with 100% confidence that if you're not in clean energy and you're looking for a new a new career, please come to clean energy. We are a nothing but pure growth for the next 30 years industry. And then if you're already in the industry, I can also help you find your, you know, your up your game and, and find those best of breed companies and opportunities that are out there. So it's, uh, it's a very exciting time. I believe you're also the uh, host of the Clean Power Hour podcast. So yes, I would love to hear about that. And in particular, is there anything surprising that's come out from the, you know, the array of interviews that you've done with different guests? Well, I'm never, I never cease to be amazed at how many passionate, caring, bright, and brilliant individuals there are in the clean energy industry. I, I just did an interview with a lovely young woman named Kate Collardson, who has started a nonprofit called Solar Recycle. It is a clearinghouse for the recycling and repurposing of used solar panels. And while this is a small problem today because our industry is quite young in the United States, it's going to be a big problem in 20 years. We're going to have to figure out better ways to repurpose and recycle and better ways to manufacture on the front end these products and create good legislation so that there are buyback programs so that the manufacturers have to take their products back and repurpose them themselves. And that way they're incentivized to create products that can be easily recycled. Because right now solar panels cannot be easily recycled. They can be recycled, but the uh, the best of breed technology really is to grind them up and, and sort them into their, their component parts, the glass, silicon, aluminum, et cetera. So that's the main thing is just, I, I never cease to be amazed at the, at the, you know, the caring and creativity of the professionals in our industry. And that's one of the things that I love about being in the solar industry is the vast majority of professionals care about sustainability also, right? They are purpose-driven entrepreneurs and professionals. And, and that just is who I prefer to be in relationship with and be colleagues with and do business with. It's not that I don't want to do business with others. Of course, I do business with all kinds of people and I, and I welcome that diversity. But I also want to be part of a tribe and, and that tribe is purpose-driven professionals. Absolutely. And I definitely echo that. And it, it's a great tribe to be part of. Um, and very, very pleased to be part of it myself as well. Um, but Tim, this has been brilliant. Really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, before we leave off, is there anything I should have asked you about but did not? Before I forget, I identified the Saul Griffith organization. It's called Rewiring America, and that's the name of yep. the website as well, rewiringamerica.org. Check that out. Great book, great organization. No, I don't think I have anything else. Check out my podcast at cleanpowerhour.com. I, I love to 
hear from my listeners. I love to get your ideas for who to bring on to the show. I, I love connecting with you. If you're interested in clean energy, bring it on. Absolutely. And we'll include those links in the show notes. Thank you, Tim. All right. Thank you, James. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the Google Play Store. I cannot express how appreciated it is. And we'll be back next week with another episode.